Welcome, friends, to the YBCA 10 podcast. The Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is a San Francisco-based organization working to generate culture that moves people and truly sits at the center for art and progress. This podcast is dedicated to highlighting each member of the 10, a multidisciplinary cohort of artists working at the root of creative practice and social impact, all brought together by YBCA to combat racism and climate inequities head on. I am Dr. Tanisha Singleton, friend and co-conspirator of YBCA, and I again am very blessed to share with you the spoken journeys and reflections and awakening conversations I and folks from the YBCA have had with members of the tent. I'm happy to reintroduce YBCA Senior Manager of Engagement and Impact, Annalisa Escobedo, who co-pilots the conversation with me in this episode as we sit and engage with YBCA 10 member and featured guest, Ayodele Nzinga. Ayodele is an arts and culture theoretician and practitioner working at the intersections of cultural production, community development, and community well-being to foster transformation in marginalized communities. She holds a Master of Fine Arts in Writing and Consciousness and a Doctorate of Philosophy in Transformative Education and Change. A Renaissance woman, Ayodele is a producing director, playwright, poet, actress, performance consultant, arts educator, community advocate, and culture-bearing anchor. She is the founder of the Lower Bottom Players, Inc. and Band CDC, that is B-A-M-B-D, CDC, a producer of BAMFest, a Cal Shakes Artist Investigator alumni, a Helen Crocker Russell Arts Leadership Fellow, a member of the Alameda County Women's Hall of Fame, recognized by Theater Bay Area as one of the 40 people who changed the face of Bay Area theater, recognized by the August Wilson House as the only director in the world to direct the complete August Wilson century cycle in chronological order, and Poet Laureate of Oakland. Certainly being like a fly on the wall in some of the conversations that we have in our weekly meetings, I'm just so in awe of your presence. And I know when you're there and I know when you're not. You know what I mean? Like there's just something, a voice, an aura that you have just such a palpable presence and spirit that I can see even in our virtual sessions, that I can only imagine what it would be like to seeing you perform live and such. And so I want to just applaud it and say that out loud so that so that you are aware and knowing kind of where I come from. And mm-hmm. for any listeners that might not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you here and how has art always been a form of activism and visual expression for you? Just tell us a little bit about your beginnings into this space. First of all, just thank you. I'm in love with moments like this. I think that it's one of the things that art does and I am aware that occasionally I get to offer the such generous gift that you're offering now to other people. How often do people actually drive up and say, tell me about you and then sit there and listen. What a beautiful invitation. And uh, shall we proceed? <laughs> um, I, art has always been a thing. I didn't always know it was art. I'm still not sure that is the most descriptive word for what most people call art for me. I have two birth certificates and therein lies the tale. So life has always been interesting. There have been lots of of challenges. I experientially became aware of the fact that we're born with stories, then we often live out the stories that are projected for us. And occasionally someone wakes up and realize that the event of living has made you an author and that you are able to, to rewrite whatever narrative perhaps is anticipated of you or intended for you. So I didn't go home from the hospital with my mother. Um, My grandmother came and got me and took me back to family farm in state line, Mississippi, where my great grandparents owned the land. Eventually, the story of migrating for opportunity 
or becoming refugees, which I actually think is a more accurate description. You leave a place because there seems to be no opportunity for you. And there was a definite point in the history of North American Africans where agrarian people, people collected to the land, opted to trade that land for an opportunity in the city, mm. an opportunity to be things that the landowners could not have dreamed of being. And in my case, like in the case of a lot of North American Africans, the land was traded, the land has never been recovered. It didn't mean quite what it was hoped it would mean to willingly pour into the melting pot. Turns out first why you can't melt. And uh, <laughs> it is interesting to think about concepts like being a servant or being a slave and mm -hmm. then owning property, but the property being the least desirable property, the least opportunity, and then opting to join the society that actually is the author of your entire existence, only to find that you can only play a minor role within it. And yes, you don't return home to the slave shack at night. Now you pay for it. And perhaps the concept of slavery never went away. It just expanded in a really interesting way that still left North American Africans at the bottom. So all of that is context for the very beginning of life was a political and economic statement of North American Africanness. But it's also um, the foreshadowing of the traumas that sort of set us up in life. And for me, trauma was an opportunity to discover ways to escape. Art for me has always been resistance. Imagination has always been resistance, a way of escaping, a way of making my own superhuman suit. You can't really hurt me if I'm not in the room. Mm. I am somewhere else. My imagination saved my life. Art saved my life. Not after, I mean, so it's been some of it's been sort of interesting. There have been times I flirted with that. We all, we like to give back our most precious gifts sometimes. But literally, the ability to imagine something beyond the current moment is, Huge. I think, why I exist. I think that I am essentially a word based artist. Uh, I claim being a Renaissance woman, I'm multidisciplined. I do a number of, of things, but the root of them is all words. And I think that it's, it's story itself, the story of a thing that is actually both form and medium, the, the thing that I use to make the art with. The, mm -hmm. the telling of the story, the proving that the story's a lie, the mindful dragging an audience through the introspection of it. Why is it true? Why is it a lie? Or let's just go into the middle and understand that sometimes lies and truth hold hands. It depends on who tells the story. Mm -hmm. you know? The ability to be able to tell a story. I hear you, doggy. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> the um, ability to be able to tell a story has always been balm for me to be able to tell myself the story of the thing. I don't think that I know how to tell a story in which I'm not the heroine. So it's my way of overcoming. Being able to center myself in situations, I think, gives me what I call a 360 view. It allows me to imagine myself, even in my enemy's body. I understand why people want what they want, why they need what they need, where human needs intersect and sort of bump up against each other. And at the same time, I've been given a specificity. I'm black and female. So that specificity gives you another identity that can be marginalized that I also very easily center. So the ability to tell a story and to take me and put me in a different relationship to mm -hmm. the facts has, has been quite convenient for me since I was really little. The, the first really imaginable thing is I don't belong to these people. I was e eventually uh, reconciled with my mother 
And like many children who suffer extreme trauma, I very conveniently told myself, these are not my people. Somehow this is all mixed up. You know, they will find me. The people who really own me will find Mm -hmm. me. Obviously, I'm destined for much, you know, much, much more. The ability to imagine got me through the educational system. They tell the story of Black boys walking out of school at around 12 years old. I walked out of school at around 12 years old. I uh, felt very much like they were out to get me. They were out Mm -hmm. to destroy me. Because as a traumatized child, I read a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had this huge imagination. When other kids stole candy out of stores, I stole books. (sighs) So I was extremely well-read for a 12-year-old. So when people introduced the concept of slavery in a form of American history and told me how docile African-Americans were, I took exception to that. Not only did I take exception, I could cite chapter and verse. <laughs> You're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Cute, wait, no. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can you imagine how disconcerting that was? Oof. You know, are you to say that those books aren't books? Uh, what you're saying? And then the, the black people write books and don't tell the truth. Oh, so this is the truth. But this is whole uh-huh. series of, it was, they had to do something with me. I have had the keys to the theater at every institution that I, uh, every educational institution that I ever attended. They mm. would give me the keys to get me out of class, to um, give me an alternative activity that was considered, you know, benign. I wasn't, I wasn't disrupting the brainwashing of 30 other students. You know, I was playing. Um mm-hmm. It never occurred to me that that was a way of silencing me. It didn't feel like it because it allowed me to, yeah, it took me out of the the space of the 30 other children, but then it put me in a space I really liked inside my own imagination where I could make worlds. So I've been making worlds since I was little and inviting other people into those worlds. I think Mm -hmm. that's why I got into theater. Theater is the grandest place for a storyteller. The characters are alive. They move around. You can put clothes on them like dolls and stuff. Mm -hmm. You can tell them what to do and how to (laughs) say it. It is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, So theater became really super attractive to me for those reasons. It was ways to amplify the ability to tell stories. Somewhere along the line, the love for words themselves emerged. Right. They were tools. It was like being magic and having all the spells. And you like being magic and you know you're magic. So you be doing the spells, right? But you don't understand what the magic is made of. The presence and the use of words were a thing I had to grow into because I I didn't understand that those are parts of the spell. I'm still Mm. figuring out the presence part of it. The fact, the words though, That became really interesting. The fact that words create the world. I've known that ever since I was really little. Mm -hmm. I've had horrible things happen to me. And then I've heard people language those things. And then I've known the story of what happened to me. And it's sort of interesting that you can make words do that. The idea of America is a perfect example of that. And no, I meant what you thought I meant the first time. It just occurs to me, and again, see this beauty of words, but that also describes my relationship with America. It is languaged in a certain way. It's language in a way to, to make you think it actually exists, that it has a history. <laughs> and if you're not careful, that history is the proof that it exists. America's a concept, an undeveloped concept, uh, a concept that Perhaps we as a group of people were in labor with extreme labor on around right. January 6th when, when somebody tried to come in and, and give us a, a, a group abortion. The negotiation of this birth is ongoing. Certainly the place that I learned to salute the flag to, I, 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 just, I can remember it. Like I can see it in my head, learning to pledge the allegiance, learning the words. Those are beautiful words. As an oath, that was so dope. This is who we are. No, it's not. It's the national anthem, which has second verse, which 
talks directly to, to slaves and how, how Americans treat slaves. Once I knew the second verse and, and in the context of the literature that I consumed as a small child to escape, so I got blessed with the literature of the Negritude era and the Harlem Renaissance. And I grew up in the context of the Black Arts Movement. The context of that and the words and those oaths don't add up. The lived history of my people puts me outside that. And how can I be outside that and this be America? Mm -hmm. I'm acutely aware of the fact that I'm a citizen by default or mistake. I don't even know when you adopted me. You bought my ancestors here in chains. I don't know how I became an American. And I'm uncertain that there was a successful ritual if you have to take the men in my tribe. And how, how, many, how many years is it that they have to turn around and decide over and over again whether or not they can vote? Right. And then they tie this. To, what the hell is all that? Again, when you just read the story as it's actually written, don't leave out any words. It's a nation created by white men for white men. And that's a difficult trope to hit. So there, there's a thing about reading and consuming knowledge and wanting it all to make sense. There was such a dissonance between that until I stopped saluting the flag in elementary school. I needed those spaces, those theater keys mm -hmm. to further figure out how to be in relationship with what seemed to be this universal attack mm -hmm. against being you know, at home, they sent you to school and right. didn't they have any idea what was going on there? That was a brutal and horrible place. And when you would come home from that horrible place and, and tell them about all the wild ideas they were trying to stuff in your head, they would inform you that those people knew better than you and you should listen without understanding that if I accepted actually whole cloth what those people told me, then I could no longer accept the people at home as a source of authority because it didn't like the way they talked or the books they let me read or, you know, any place where they diverged. Then if I have to pledge my allegiance, if I pledge my allegiance there, not only do I leave behind who I think is me, I leave you behind too. And even though I wasn't wild about home, sort of instinctively knew that I know that home is me. You can't leave you behind. I started making theater in high school on a formal basis, actually, doing full-scale productions. I always wrote. You know, it's how you get to a whole play, right? I never considered writing a thing probably until after I finally realized I, I wasn't going to complete high school. I spent too much time in the, kicked out of uh, classes like English and history. There was no, I questioned the literature selection in English classes. Sure. And I, uh, in history classes, I was just everybody's nightmare, you know. And this was like, in Memphis? No, no. I went to, okay, my family farm was in State Line, Mississippi. Mississippi. But we came to California in the late 50s. And by the time I was in school, and especially uh -huh. uh, junior high school, in high school, I was living with my mother again. And my mother lived in Vallejo, California. Oh, okay. Uh, no, this is in California, which isn't quite as liberal as people think it is. <laughs> Show Wayne. I know. I know Vallejo. I'm from Riverside. I'm ah, in Sherman yes. Oaks right now. Yes, yes, Annalisa yes. knows about Riverside. Yes. Oh, yeah. My partner is born and raised in the crest of Vallejo. So he definitely knows that grew up right there in that church. Maybe next time I go to LA, you guys could have a nice connection. He will love to hear stories about him being back home. But I'm from East Compton and down in LA in that neighborhood where I still have majority of my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I call it the, uh, the town of the, uh, what is it? The big mouth and the small mind. Everyone oh. knows everyone's business. And uh, yeah, it's very cosmopolitan now, believe it or not, compared to the way it once was. I walked to school. It was about a mile. There are actually communities now. And what used to be pasture and like open hills and stuff is interesting to be old enough to have seen a city develop like that, where yeah. I can actually get lost there now, you know, because wow. I go and there's what well, there was not stuff, there's stuff. 
now there's you know? lots of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Starbucks. So I got out of high school without a high school diploma. And I was trying to get into junior college, not because I wanted more education. I thought education sucked, but I liked learning per se. And I knew somehow I wasn't finished. It was like you are supposed to do something. And I had managed to get out of my mom's house. And so you go and they've got the brochure and you can pick out what you want to do. I went to junior college for maybe, I don't know, maybe at least six years. No one told me how to matriculate. Therefore, I went through every theater department in the Peralta system. It is a tri-city system. In a way, that was a super good education. At the same time, I was doing a more radical sort of Black arts movement-based theater. One of my mentors is Marvin X, and I call it a baptism through fire. So, you know, he's doing theater in parking lots and in basements and, you know, with with floodlights. (laughs) (laughs) Gorilla style. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh... That is where I figured out I didn't speak English. It's where the love of words and the awareness of Ebonics, and it's actually the beginning of my theories around language. I understand why Ebonics persists. Ebonics persists because within language, there is a worldview. And English is a worldview that is not consistent with my well-being. I think that the fact that Ebonics persists not just in some little one rural space. And it's bigger than nationally because there are people who emulate the dialect who don't even live in the country and speak English as a second language. It's also signaled by the energy to not make it be a language that should signal it. Yeah, it really is a language. You know, it says that to have a language, you need an army. The army in this case is the subconscious of North American Africans who just don't melt good. We don't melt well. And so all of this wearing down into a civilization, one of the signals of it not being a done deal is the persistence of Ebonics. And just like any other language, I'm sure you noticed, Tanisha. I don't know if you know it, Annalisa, but you're about to find out. There's some things you just can't say in English and you need Ebonics. Yes. And because language is only 23% verbal, one of the dope things about Ebonics is I just did it in a sense. The words were English, but it's some things you just can't say in English. Exactly. Exactly. The the other things, the nonverbals that help us to tell language, then make those English words no longer be English. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this, this, uh, when I figured out words could do that, then that became really, really interesting to me. The world making and the use of language, the space between words, the interplay between what words supposedly mean, how they play out in reality. And I'm also fascinated by the way that the system knows this too. And so it takes words and weaponizes them and remakes them. So again, learning then. I think for the first time when I discovered the power in words was when I began to take the idea of being able to make art and make worlds and understand that's what it was, world making, that it was powerful, really, really powerful. It's when I began to be able to unpack the spells. I'm extremely shy. I'm an extreme introvert. Really? Yes. It's one of the reasons why I'm not mad at Zoom. Everybody else got mad during the pandemic. You know, it's easier. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I ain't got to go nowhere. Yeah. (laughs) And you guys are in individual boxes instead of in a room of 40 or 50, you know. Mm -hmm. But even that became easier because I am an actress. So I know how to act brave. I know how to act confident. I know how to act like I'm an extrovert. I know how to act like I'm an extrovert so well. I can even convince myself at times where it increases my comfort level in spaces that I'm not really all that comfortable in. The problem is I love having conversations. And art for me is also a way of having huge, very complex conversations over time with different groups of people. So... 
Dr. Singleton, isn't that delicious as a researcher, right? It is. It is. Because I'm hearing when you said like imagination saved your life and how important that is to you. I can see that for an introvert. Yes, you're internal. You are in your mind and absorbing and living like an extrovert through your imagination. And you're out and you're seeing and you're experiencing, but it's all mental. It's all an internal experience. And even after that, like when you can feel exhausted, like a social person going out to bar to bar to bar or whatever, and they come home like, oh, man, I'm exhausted. It's like you could have that same level of of achievement and exhaustion, but it's all still internal. And it's a labor, just like mental work, self-work. It's a labor, just like a builder or farmer. Self-work, all of that internal stuff, it's still reps that you would do in a gym, when you complete a set and you have to do like four sets of 10 or 12 or 15 and whatever, it's like, these are emotional mental reps that still strengthen our brain, our muscle and any other source of us internally that, that needs servicing like your heart. And that can still feel laboring. And when you're done, you can still be like, (laughs) just need to exhale and feel exhausted. It's damn. Yeah. Annalisa. That's That's a great read. Yeah, it's I Adele. I sat on when was it? I believe on Friday I shared my learning disability. I have a learning disability. I also have a speech impediment. And abonics is my first language because it's the first words that help me feel comfortable in stumbling and being okay. There are certain words to this day. I just recently practiced how to say um conservatory. That was the word I just accomplished to get it. There was a one point I remember not being able to say the word knowledge. And the reason why a lot of my, those disabilities is because I went through a lot of trauma. I, my father passed away when I was a child and living in, in the early nineties, I can only say that like witnessing a lot with my small family. So language is definitely like um, a need is support. I can say that I didn't learn Spanish until I was 18. And that was a window and a worldview that sparked more than just myself, but welcoming as well as to other people. Because mm. to this day, I meet somebody, they're like, oh my God, I can talk to you. I feel comfortable. Yes, I feel like crying. I'm sorry, Ayodela, but that really like touched me. You said a nice table, Tanisha. I've been hearing myself wander through the desert and I would have drugged myself more to the YBCA table earlier, but it was fun. And like I said, people don't get that opportunity to offer the myth of them, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I will be neat and segue myself. So there are all these life reasons why I'm really connected to imagination, voice, words, story. In all this reading and taking in things, the work of Somme in terms of Bikini Faso, the Tagata people, Nomo, the, the dog star. When I encountered that, it sounded and felt familiar. Probably is the seed of me being a practitioner of Ifa now. It, like I said, it sounded familiar. The biggest impression was that the medicine wheel. Some has races, some people are mineral people, some people are fire people, some people are water people, resonated with me. And then also the idea that everyone is sent into this existence, the event of life with gifts and work to do. People often say life doesn't come with, this, with instructions. I, I dare to differ, it does. Not only does it come with instructions, you need to remember them. Mm. It's not that you're going to learn them. You need to remember them. So I feel like I do what was whispered in my ear right before I took my, my first breath. I was born to tell the story. I have survived and been given tools to survive, to tell the story. It's odd. In reality, I have a really weird memory. I call it a traumatic memory. There are whole chunks of my childhood that I don't remember. And then there are events that stand out in stark relief that 
are like yesterday. I remember almost everything I read. My head is crammed full of facts. But sometimes I can't tell you what I did last week until I look at a calendar and reconstruct it. Yep. That is my relationship with my physical memory in real life. Yet I call myself she who remembers. You know, they asked you something. Well, can't y'all just get over slavery? Just get over it. I mean, we didn't just get over it. And I'm one of those people who tell you, no, we, we can't get over it until it's resolved. It is a, a part of the story. It is a part of the context. There are too many things that happen today because of it. And mm-hmm. then so until we tie it up, no, it's still a part of the story. I think that memory is dangerous. An example I would give you, I challenge either of you to give me all the names of all the men murdered by police in a sketchy way just this year. Not in the last five or the last two, just this year. Mm -hmm. I know that I can win this bet in almost any room because you can't know all those names and get up and walk through the street without howling. You just can't. So we march for Oscar Grant. And then we forget, we go back to work, we pay our taxes, we have birthday parties, and then we march for Mike Brown, and then we go to graduations, and kids graduate from high school, and blah, 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 blah. It's a fresh wound every time. Mm -hmm. Every 15 years, some brilliant group of youngsters gets up and says, we should start a revolution. I don't know why all the people behind us have never done it, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't remember. We don't remember stuff. It's not just Black people. Americans don't remember stuff. You know, there's conspiracy theory that says there are antidepressants in the water. Maybe. We don't remember stuff to our detriment in a really weird-ass way. The government can do something to you today, and 18 months from now, you don't fucking remember. And, Mm -hmm. And you're making some move or doing something or accepting some story that somebody like me says, wait, wait, don't you remember? They politicize what we want to remember and educate. Critical yes. race theory. They, it's literally where information is now a ballot. Like that information is now actually something we can vote on. <laughs> like what's the fuck? Like how the hell? Like it's it's laughable. It's laughable. And I maybe that's just why I love comedy and the, you know, the happy, sad clown thing. But it's literally laughable. And I remember I had a student who wanted to do her final project on dismantling corrupt systems. And I was like, oh, really? That's cool. You Can you send me that Zoom link? Can you send me a calendar? Like, when is that going to happen? Right. Like, are there tickets? As if people hadn't died or imagined or have continued, right, to to work in this form. And so I always just want to at least try and remind myself, like, control what you can control, whether that be our imagination, how to somehow still laugh, how somehow to still find balance, to remain being a lifelong learner while still making joy and laughter a priority because there will be enough looking out the window that can remind us of our history and the things that they want us to not remember. It's just, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to go through all of that stuff. And it's, I wanted to ask you too, like, like shit's heavy, right? Like we're talking about like one of the first things you said is, you know, where living makes you an author and our ability to construct our own narrative using our own words, our own language visual semiotics all of it to express it or communicate it to others in our tribes and in our communities but sometimes i feel like damn that puts so much on it that means like every moment is so intentional or so heavy right it's like when can i just flow and when can i just chill and just be while still knowing like every moment every experience like, does every moment have to be an experience? Like, big stuff. You know what I mean? This is These are questions I ask internally of myself. It feels, it can add extra anxiety or stress. We're like, I have to have a good day today because the cop may kill me tomorrow. I have to go, you know, where you just feel like every moment you have to almost be extra aware when instead sometimes I just seek flow state. Does that make sense? It makes sense. 
expert. You'll find I have an opinion on almost everything. And yep. if I don't, you just talk about it and I'll form one quickly. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that every moment is an event. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that all events are big events. Right. Sometimes right. I get incredibly fucking happy because I woke up. Right. I didn't have to. That moment before you start assessing, but this is due and this is wrong. And oh, yes, I found out yesterday. That moment where your eyes open, you're not in pain. I'm blessed. I'm inside. Mm-hmm. I got a dope life, even before I remember that I'm part of the YBCA 10 or this or that. Even before that, I woke up somewhere safe. Yeah. It's not uncomfortable. You know, there I am really proud to say more days than not, that gives me just the most immense rush joy. On my very best days, I follow that with, and I get to wake up. Y'all know how much sperm they flush. We are here. Oh my God. Wow. Just amazing that we are. And that we continue to wake up. I have a friend that has a song that says, every breath of life is a new beginning. And yes, you know, even if things are wrong, if you woke up, you're an author. You get to keep Uh. working on it. You know, there are people who have no problems. They don't no longer struggle with the beautiful philosophical things you stated. They did not wake up this morning. Right. So normally waking up means you won the day, even if nothing else extraordinary happens. Small things are are valuable. I have Mm -hmm. a flock of doves, not pigeons, doves, that visit the wire in front of my house. They share the space with crows, which I find super unusual in terms of symbology. They're two very, very different birds, Mm -hmm. right? And that I would have them both. That's a small thing. And I noticed it. And so it gives me pleasure, you know? I have poems about the grapevine in my front yard and the fig tree that was in the yard that I used to live in and the bell tree that actually taught me that it was okay to plant gardens for other people, gardens in places that you knew you couldn't stay, that it was okay to make beautiful stuff for other people to find. And that somehow that made your life richer. Sometimes it rains and it just smells good. There's a word for that, you know? So I think every moment is an event in that the time that you have spent here today talking to me, you will never get that back in life, ever. These are unique moments we have spent together. So for me, it encourages me not to linger in my pettiness to try to build my capacity for grace for myself and for other people. Recently, I had a difficult moment where there was some contention. And I had to remind myself that the amount of resistance that I give in any situation has to be proportional to what the outcome is. Mm. If it's a poor return, it's just one upman or I'm right, I'm out. You could be right. It's okay. You you could be right. All right. Not worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have to play. Okay. I can just what you can't do is you can't be wrong, want to be right, and make me stay in the room with you. <laughs> but I will leave the room and let you have it, not because I'm making myself smaller, but because I realize I ain't never gonna have this time back no more. I can't do this with you. No, uh-uh. My because every second is an event. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then on, on top of that, it's every is, is just reality. It's not always pleasant. Right. Sometimes yeah. things hurt. Bad things do exist. There are days when you are sad. Sometimes being sad is an honor. Um, why are you sad? What does your sadness honor? And if you can't take the time to be that and understand that that's an event and a worthy event, then whatever it is that you honor with your sadness then doesn't receive that, right? We get sad because people die or people are sick or opportunity is lost or because someone was mean. 
it's okay to be sad. Um, I am a subscriber of You Cannot Be Sad Forever. But if you want a day where you just sit and paint yourself blue and you cry all day, you could do that. Mm -hmm. I just, like I said, I don't suggest you spend the rest of your days like that. But if you need one day to honor something, then you should do it. Because it is not just, that's why joy trumps happiness. Happiness is smiling. Mm. Joy is being able to sit there and cry because you're sad and honor the fact that you woke up this morning so you could feel sad. And that there's some people who will never feel sad again. And that you get the privilege of being wounded because you woke up with breath in your body. I so appreciate you saying that deep. Annalisa, what were you going to say? I see you nodding. No, uh, I'm just sitting with it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting with it. I'm thinking about my morning, Nayodele and Tunisia. I'm thinking about I woke up at 5.30 and I ran. And even today before this moment, I thought about there was a moment in my life that I didn't run when I hurt my leg. And before that, where I didn't run, I had nowhere to run to. So you're right. Even as my muscles hurt it after the run, <laughs> I was like, that feeling mm-hmm. I was so great, was so good. And the joys of that, um, again, I'm excited to do it. And it's, there's been moments in my life where I'm like, I'm not excited for tomorrow, but I'm like thinking about this one. I'm, like, I'm excited for tomorrow. I'm also wondering, being with the YBCA 10, what has brought you joy with being with these group of artists? I think my biggest project in any room is me. It doesn't matter what else I'm doing. There's an old spiritual called, if you see me praying, I'm building me a house. If you see me crying, I'm building me a house. So whatever you see me doing, I'm building me a house, (laughs) you know, it kind of relates back to one more thing that Tanisha said, when do we get the chance just to be, if we lucky every minute that we are, every minute that we are, you know, we are being, you know, Mm -hmm. a part of being at YBCA 10, or being a part of the YBCA 10, the blessing, one of the best commissions I've ever gotten in my life is the space to sit in being an artist and take yourself serious. There's a thing about being marginalized. It kind of goes along with imposter syndrome. You know, you can be doing a thing and have done it for years. You can be doing it at the top of your field. And still there's sort of a feeling that, you know, you're Mm -hmm. gonna bust in and find out that I'm doing it and it's gonna be all bad. (laughs) So the idea to, to sit and take yourself seriously for a moment to be able to do a piece of work that is super complex and have the other thought partners in the room that could actually take things in a different direction have actually emboldened me to swing out in some ways that I I wouldn't normally like to attempt something that's a, a visual piece of art, you know? There are elements of things I do, like I design sets, you know, I, I design costumes and, and secretly I have a whole stack of canvases but I'm not a visual artist. I don't do visual arts installations. So the Watchtower very much depends on on visual art. And to collaborate with visual artists in this way is new and not new. Isu and I have worked before together to do sets or to uh, create marketing. But again, in the service of art, on an art project, this is a different thing. So it's allowed for that interface. To have someone in the room like Dorothy, I don't know how else I would have met Dorothy if I hadn't got brought into this particular collaboration. Mm -hmm. To understand that she is a poet and understands words and has the same sort of sensibility towards words as I do, but then knows all of this. this, I I wish she could hear this. All this tech shit (laughs) (laughs) Is, is just amazing to me, you know? The generosity of fellow artists in terms of helping to sharpen ideas and also to invite you into their lane to play. Things that excite me are, as I watch uh, Hussein build this house and he comes and he shows me, these are the parts I want you to write on. The idea of being offered that privilege, honor, responsibility in terms of co-creation with him 
And then how that all works with this super complex thing that's all about language in my head that's my offering is just so, my favorite thing on earth to eat is gumbo. When I make a big pot of gumbo and I make Mm. big pots. Yeah, you can't make a single serving of gumbo. I eat it every day (laughs) until it's gone. YBCA in this feels like having a big pot of gumbo. It is feeding me in so many ways. It is making me smarter. It is also making me aware of how smart I already am. And that's a super blessing. It is making me bolder. I think I've always been brave, but not bold. Mm -hmm. It's making me bolder. And I really like that, you know? When I think about my project now, Annalisa, it relates a lot to this conversation this morning, which has been a lot about language. That is, my project is about language. The performance is oral language. And I think it's what people expected of me because I am a performance artist and words are my forte. I am the words language. She's going to do some poetry and it's going to be dope. I don't think people know how complex my work actually is. And so to be able to do performance work, okay, now I would like for you to understand that this is tied to this visual thing that you see here. And this is not me performing to a prompt. This is me creating both bodies of work. And they're both language because the visual installation I view as visual language. It's talking to you. It's going to tell you a story. It's a part of the narrative. And in the aggregate, it's a part of the narrative and it fits into the performance. It's a, a chapter in it. And then to have the unreliable narrator, which is just the most delicious thing ever. Yes, um, it is. I, from the title on, this just exploiting of language. So where are the reliable narrators, you guys? Who's the reliable narrator? Are the other museums who tell you about the usually stolen artifacts that they have and what they mean? They're reliable narrators? Who is a reliable, who either of the cultures being cast in a museum be considered on its own without being edited to be a reliable narrator of what is there? I don't think so. No one's a reliable narrator. Everyone brings their perspective to what it is they're communicating. It's a part of communication. Communication is an agreement. If we don't have the same worldview, the words don't even mean the same thing to us, right? So what happens when you know that I play with words anyway, and I say that I'm an unreliable narrator? Does that make me more reliable? I don't know. Then the ability to only interact with the parts of the installation that I want to is a a bit of just personal artistic freedom that I think it's difficult to attend large collaborative pieces sometimes when they're cobbled together. And some of the cobbling is excellent, but they say that an error is the thing that proves the solidity of the rest, right? It stops, it, it gives me a piece of artistic integrity, piece of power. And, and if you're a world maker, then you, you have to acknowledge where you can find that. And then the ability to almost be like a honeybee and pollinate things to dip in and give people another way then of actually languaging the thing that they're doing and then somehow getting to weave that together as a final story. What's on the last page of the unreliable narrator? And I think what's on the last page of the unreliable narrator, which is text, language in a different way, static, captured text, what I call contract text, once you write it down, it's there, it lives forever. And juxtaposition against the performance, which is in three very intentional parts, creates an installation where really the medium is language. It's just parsed in different ways and played with in different ways and made to do different tricks in different houses. And YBCA in establishing the 10 Remember how I said theater is the most funnest thing for a storyteller because you get all these dolls and you get to dress them up and move them around. Mm-hmm. The YBCA gave me dolls who know stuff. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I get to hang out with them and move them around in different rooms. And so 
it's it's been really it's been really dope in that way. It, it's sharpening me as an individual artist. It's allowing me to craft a piece of work that I'm super interested in, and I think will be meaningful in this context and will complement the other work going on in the room. And it's allowing me to continue to develop the muscle of collaboration, which is a muscle that I need to develop. I don't think that collaboration is taught formally in the world anywhere. I think there are a lot of things to be learned out of this particular experience. What I know is that we need more, more places in which to practice it, because that's how we live or die here, collaboratively, as a group. You know, We either learn how to work it out <laughs> Or we learn how to lay down nice together. So, mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And the brave versus bold. I think that that's huge too. And the difference in what the outcome is from receiving it, or like feeling brave versus feeling bold, come from two different tracks. I love that that you brought that up. And what a pleasant surprise or or an extra experience and skill that, like you said, you're strengthening through co-collaboration. I think that that's what I love about these types of experiences and what the 10 has enabled and that there are so many surprises that end up becoming personal and monumental skill sets, new capabilities that have been either dormant and now reignited can be strengthened now, having these new touch points. And, and like you said about, about Dorothy, you know, it's like this tech shit. I love it. Just big stuff. I love it. It's great because I can see and hear her doing it too. It's just so beautiful. So awesome. Man. Yeah. I just love and I want to sit with all of this and I will for the remainder of the day. It, it set a, a certainly a new tone and one that you know, I think you're certainly leading from the front and championing, (laughs) if I can, yeah, say that word. I want to be respectful of your time, and I know we could go on and on, and I want to, and this certainly isn't the last space we'll make together to continue having these types of conversations. We will do it again and again in this format and otherwise, too. I can't wait to get out there in person soon. Um, Annalisa, was there anything you wanted to to say as we try to wrap up a little bit or final questions? I'm just happy that I work at a, a place that's able to give you the dolls. Mm. <laughs> I'm happy. You know, all of you guys are all so different, beautiful individuals and are creating this amazing, monumental, intentional work. Yeah. And it's not easy. But it's also, like you said, it's a process. It is a process to come together and you get to learn from each other. And I think that's the beautiful way. I think the overall purpose, what we intentionally wanted to do, like, how do we do this? Um, We are learning. I'm learning from you guys every day. Mm -hmm. Like how to best support, how to best communicate with all you, with everyone. And thank you. Just thank you for understanding and hearing us and showing up and man i can't wait for that watchtower i love me some isu's mm. work i already see it and yes slowly being processed but i it's and everybody could come down and see the little moments um but you know what that's how change happens in moments you're right so if i get to say a last thing yes please about ybca about me being my favorite project and about so how do we live then, you know? Should we always just be really intense? Yeah, there's a lot of intensity in my world. There's a lot of just sitting and watching too, though. And I'm beginning to develop the, let's say beginning. I've been in probably in a 10-year conversation with myself about stillness because that's how change happens, like Annalisa said, in small little pieces. So first I have to realize, and then I, I sit and I look at it, and I'm immersed, right? YBCA 10 has given me time and space to kind of focus, Tanisha, on being. The idea of just being, you know? There's so many things that deflect from that. Having to have 79 jobs, you know, all, all of those different things, the, the space for the stillnesses. And so, again, a thing I've just 
really grateful to this experience for is the space and time to practice being, to understand that I create, so therefore I am. And there's something wonderful in knowing that you are. It's distinguished from, so you need to chase to become. Because uh-huh. if you are, then the stillness, the sitting in it, and the being becomes accessible. And so I don't know how to say this any better than this. YBCA, this experience has made me being more accessible to myself. I just had to write that down. <laughs> that, I was like, you made me lean back. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> good, good, good. good. <laughs> My yeah. work here is done. <laughs> like, yeah, your work here is done. You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, you just made me like, literally in terms of, oh shit. And I just had to write that down. Like the chase to become versus being. Because so often we feel like, I feel like I've observed the notion that we have to chase, we have to, that hustle porn mentality of like, I have to do this, do this, this, I have to be the loudest or I'm going to be oversaturated by all the other things, right? The other candidates, the other people, the uh, the system, everything. Like we are Mm -hmm. against, everything is a fight. Maybe that's why subconsciously I love sports so much because it's a competition. Even if it's a one person sport like golf or if it's one-on-one like tennis or a team like basketball where you have teammates to rely on or if you only have yourself, it's versus just the little ball in the hole. Like maybe that's why I like these things so much because there's that aspect of competition and co-collaboration or all of these things and the result, the win, is that you are, right? Like, you are the champion. You won. You are great, right? And maybe that's just, you know, an athletic metaphor of it. But, yeah, I just, I had to write that down. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) That was definitely, you've provided multiple oh shit moments for me in the most nourishing of ways. Good. Good. If you eat, we all eat. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Gumbo. Yeah. For days. Cause you can't just make one serving. Yeah. That's, that's the big pot that my mom keeps on top of the refrigerator. Yep. Your mom know where the gumbo pie go. Cause that's where mine is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right on top of the refrigerator. That's the greens pot. That's the gumbo pot that, yeah, we're about to bust it out too. make some. She's from Selma, Alabama. And plays zero games and <laughs> and you you definitely remind me of her and she's yeah she's been my rock like the one that I don't want to disappoint that's been like my biggest as I reflect and and, and just in hindsight like what I always notice like what drives me to like have 75 jobs and all of mm-hmm. these things it's like I don't want to disappoint her and when I find myself tripping often like when you said like honoring when you're sad you're honoring something right and when I get sad and I recognize like okay it's because maybe I didn't get this job or I didn't do great on this and this and this somehow I think that's going to reflect poorly on me or and that's why I'm sad because I did something that is going to disappoint her and maybe it's because of she was born in 1945 and Selma and knows, remembers shit. <laughs> We're talking about the, you know, the retaining experience and history and these things. And it's seems small to me. Like if I bitch because like, oh, I got left on red or I didn't get this job or something. And then it's like, well, she remembers experiencing like other shit. But big moments, small moments, it's all a moment that we can't say good or bad is worth more than another right i tell my kids it's always the good old days you just don't know it until you're thinking back on it you know they're always the good old days no matter what your problem is on any given day when you look back on it on 10 years 10 years from now if it's nothing except for you were 10 years prettier you realize those were the good old days because if you live for another 10 years your problems will become more complex you know so it's always the good old days it's um again i think it's um 
a little kid's way of negotiating a really traumatized life. Count the blessings. If you count the blessings, you find out they actually pile up so high until mm-hmm. no matter what the bad things are, if you're alive, it's kind of impossible not to be winning. Another, oh shit. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you so much for making space, sharing, giving me a Rolodex of oh shit moments that I've written down and that I'm going to sit with for a long time. I, I super love these kind of spaces. I'm sorry Same. I was such a, a slow respondent. No. I am, I am always down. Show up with your microphone and we can throw down. Okay. Yes. I love it. I It, it was perfect. Links will be provided in the description box on how to get in touch with and learn more about Iodele. We welcome feedback from our community and invite you all to reach out to us here at YBCA. Visit us at ybca.org for more information regarding not only the 10, but all the various programs, opportunities, and events we are hosting to generate culture that moves people. Your support of YBCA fuels new paths forward for artists serving the needs of their community, bringing connection, hope, and possibility through their creative enterprises. Links to make a contribution will also be provided in the description box and can be found on our website as well. So please be sure to sign up for the YBCA newsletter to not miss out on any of the latest news and updates. And to get a behind-the-scenes perspective of all things art and activism, follow us on social media at YBCA on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.